Good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn to the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And when you find the book of Acts, I want you to find the last chapter of the book of Acts, which of course is Acts chapter 28. And when you find the last chapter of the book of Acts, I want you to find the last two verses of the last chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. I'm excited about next week. I'll talk about this week in just a moment. But I'm excited about next week because next week, as we finish this vision series called 2021 Today, we're diving back into the book of Jeremiah. For those of you who perhaps are new to Church at the Mill, maybe you've been joining us for a few weeks and haven't journeyed with us through the book of Jeremiah, the pattern of our teaching and preaching ministry is to take books of the Bible and to walk through them verse by verse because we believe the authority in preaching is not the pastor, the platform, the position, it's the Word. And so the best way to milk the Word of all its meaning is to walk through it systematically. And last year, we began walking through the book of Jeremiah. We made it through the first 10 chapters, and we are going to continue that. We will finish our journey in Jeremiah in the year 2032. Uh, but as we start chapter 11 next week, we're going to open up a new series called Blessed to Broken. We often talk about being broken and then God blessing us. But what happens when you're blessed and you end up broken? And we're going to see that in the picture that God gives us through the prophet Jeremiah. No matter where you are or what you're struggling with or what the challenges in your life may be, I can assure you this series will speak to you directly, not because of my wisdom or insight, but because of the inerrancy of Scripture and what it does in our life. Nevertheless, we come today, though, to the fifth sermon series in our opening series of the year called 2021. We named the vision series this year after the year because we chose to grab a verse from God's Word that we felt appropriate to be a theme, a thrust for our entire year. And the idea goes something like this. People, organizations, churches, they're always moving. If you're not moving, you're dead. Now, people move for all sorts of reasons. Some folks are fleeing something. They want to run away from something, a past, a mistake, a struggle, a season. Other folks are chasing something. If I, if I could just get this or that, if I could just have this opportunity or be in a relationship with him or her, I'll find fulfillment. And then there are times when we're searching. I feel like I've said that over the last nine months more than anything else. I I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Lord, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. We've all felt that. And, and true, in all of our lives, there are moments where we feel we're chasing, we're fleeing, and we're searching. But then you come across somebody who's sent. They're moving with purpose. And when you come across somebody who's been sent, you know two things about them instantly. They're not operating on their own authority. They're moving because someone sent them. And then, of course, that leads to the second truth. They have a clear direction and a mission. And I, I challenged you five weeks ago that for many of us, we felt like 2020 happened to us. As a church family, there's still a lot going on we can't control, but let's happen to 2021. Let's take it. Let's be intentional. And we grabbed John chapter 20, 21, because it was simple to remember. The address in the Bible, John chapter 20, verse 21, happens to also be the calendar year 2021. And the key word in the verse that Jesus gives us 
happens to be this theme, this desire. In fact, I ask you to memorize this verse, this verse that Jesus said the day of his resurrection. I've been reminding you that it is a wonderful and powerful thing that Jesus would die for us. But had he just died, had he only been crucified on the cross, he would have joined many, many others who were martyred for a cause. But because he rose again, the validity of his claim is true. He was not an ordinary man. He truly was, as the soldier said, when he died, the son of God. And the evening of his resurrection, he found the disciples and appeared to them in the upper room. And in the upper room, he says to them these words. These words that I've asked you to memorize, and in honor of God's word, I want you to read them with me out loud. Let's begin, John 20. 21, go. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You got to do that pastoral pause. I am sending you. So many of you have come up to me in public and said, I got my verse and you've done a great job. A few of you have invented some heresy. I've had a little bit of that this morning. You know who you are. But keep practicing. My favorite are the children who come up and tell me the verse. It excites me to listen to you quote the verse. I've asked you to do that, and I can always tell whether or not you've been studying because if you don't, you avoid me at Costco. You go to the other aisle, or you hide behind a menu. You don't, you don't want to see me because you're scared that I'll ask. I haven't pushed through that awkwardness at this point. I'm going to give you another month or two, but at some point I'm just going to scream, Hey, say the verse. Put you right on the spot. It's one sentence, two sentences, one verse powerful statement Jesus says the father sent me and I accomplished my purpose I died for you and I've risen again we know that soon after this he ascended into heaven he's there now preparing a place for us he rules and reigns from a throne in heaven we know he will return we live in between his first and his second coming and now with his absence here on earth physically he is present spiritually therefore he says it's no longer my hands and feet you are my hands and feet, which is why the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. And then this remarkable truth begins to resonate. We are sent on the same mission that Jesus was sent on, with the same tools and power and message. And when we begin to think about this, we come to the fifth part of our vision, on the first Sunday of the year, I just talked about the concept and the truth and the reality of being sent. And then we begin to unpack it in relationship to how we communicate our vision here at Church at the Mill. We want to be a place and a people of new beginnings and real relationships. And we believe this happens when we gather. So we talked about being sent together. When we grow, my brother preached on a spiritual growth, being sent to grow. When we give, and last week we talked about generosity and sharing our tithes, our treasure, our time, we're sent to give, and finally we are sent, obviously, to go, to share, to make the gospel known. Inside of church, I understand there's no shortage of jargon and I recognize that even inside of a Christian community and a culture, you can develop your own language. But all of you have different backgrounds. Some of you are brand new to our church, and many of you watching online have only found us in the last few months. So I want to be crystal clear what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about pushing 
church attendance by inviting people to church. I'm not talking about just saying to someone, God bless you when they sneeze or leaving them a good tip and telling them about your church when you leave the restaurant. These are good things. I'm not against these things. I'm talking about articulating to people how to have a relationship with Jesus. I grew up in an environment where it was called witnessing. How's your witnessing? Over the years, many authors, pastors, communicated communicators, gifted men and women have used all kinds of language. Much of, much of it is biblical. Sharing your faith, sharing Christ, sharing with someone the gospel, telling the good news, giving a witness. These are all synonyms for the idea of a believer, not a pastor, not a guy with a stage or a platform, of everyday common folk who love Jesus deciding that you want to leverage your life so that other people have a deeper understanding not only of who Christ is, but of how to come into a right relationship with him. And when we come to the last two verses of the book of Acts, I believe it really teaches us the value of a life that is sent. Let me show you what I mean. Look with me in your copy of God's Word Beginning in verse 30, I'll need to give you some context. I'll do it as I read. He, is Paul, lived there, that's Rome, two whole years, that's his first imprisonment. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. His first imprisonment was minimum security. He was under house arrest, and therefore he was allowed the freedom of renting his own quarters, and a soldier would be assigned to keep an eye on him. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And right there, the gospel continues to go as the book of Acts closes. We talk about value in a lot of different ways. We talk about Christian values and family values, but perhaps if you're a parent, you understand the first value you teach a child is numeric value. You know, you teach them to count, right? We associate symbols and words with a certain amount of theme. If you ask me how old I am, I don't say yellow. Colors and numbers are different. The little ones, they don't always differentiate that. And so it usually starts with just counting. One, two, how many grapes are on your plate? Three, four. And then we always ask them their age. How old are you? Little ones say, how many are you? And for some of you, it is many, many, many. You know, we ask them all, they're like, how old are you? And then we get on to them when they ask an older person, how old are you? It's kind of mean. But we teach them to count one and two and three and then and then when they you know are learning those values you can have some fun with them one of the ones I do that's rather cheesy is I tell a kid who's learning to count and add that I have 11 fingers I said let me show you I'll count backwards 10 9 8 7 6 6 plus 5 it's 11 <laughs> obviously you know I don't have 11 fingers but a little one doesn't know that they do this also with the value of money in fact, they ask you sweet little questions like, how many monies do you have? They will trade you a $10 bill for a bag of pennies because it looks like more. 
Some of you are like, my wife does that. The value of a dollar. I'll tell you my one and only joke today about the value of a dollar. City Slicker moved to the country, a lot of that going on. And he decided everybody around him had a mule. He wanted a mule. So he went to a farmer next door and said, you got a pasture full of mules. Can I have a mule? What do you want a mule for? You going to plow? Nope, I just want a mule because you got a mule. Everybody's got one pasture, need an animal. So he said, sure, I'll see that mule right there, $400. City Slicker said, you know what? I don't have my pasture fenced yet. Can I leave my mule in your pasture? He said, you sure can, but I want you to know it's your mule. This is a done deal. No problem. About a month later, the city slicker shows back up and says, hey, I'd like to get my mule. He said, well, I got bad news for you. Your mule died yesterday. He said, he died? What am I supposed to do with a dead mule? The farmer said, I don't know. That's your problem. You gave me the $400. It's your mule. You need to take him. I'm stuck with a dead mule. So he, very discouraged, loaded up the dead mule and left. A few weeks later, the farmer ran into him and said, you know, I thought about that, and I mistreated you. That was wrong with me. The city seeker said, hey, listen, don't worry about it. A deal's a deal. I got my money back. I sold him. He said, you sold a dead mule? Who would buy a dead mule? He said, well, I raffled him off. You raffled off a dead mule? He said, sure did. I sold $2 chances at winning a mule, and I sold 200 of them. $2 times 200 is $400. Got all my money back. He said, are you kidding me? He said, what about the guy who won the raffle? Was he mad? He said, he sure was real mad when he realized the mule was dead. What did you do? I gave him his $2 back. <laughs> the value of a dollar is something you better understand. But the value of the gospel far exceeds that. I want to give you from two verses three value words about being sent and the first one is somewhat implied so let me give it to you when God sent to us he sent us with zero excuses zero is a value in fact it's an integer on the number line it holds a place if you go one way they're positive numbers if you go the other way they're negative numbers zero is a value you and I know what it is to have zero. We've been there before. There are certain things you don't want any of. The fascinating twist in the book of Acts is that it begins with a trumpet call from God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What does Jesus say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you could be, might be, should be, nope. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that verse has formed many churches' mission strategy as it should. The idea being that we want to share our faith where we live. We want to share our faith to the larger community. We want to share our faith to neighboring communities. And we want to share our faith to every tribe and every tongue, every nation. And so the book of Acts starts with this fast-moving gospel. And then everything goes wrong in the eyes of of the world notice verse 30 again where is the greatest communicator of the gospel greatest person to articulate theology and no doubt the most significant church planter in the first century where is he in prison and he's not in prison for two days or two weeks or two months 
We know from Luke's account, and this is the only one where we have a biographical number attached to the amount of sentence he's serving, he's there for two years. Now, there's some debate about how many times Paul was in prison, but we don't debate that it was at least twice. This was the first one. He would eventually get released, and there would be a second one. Some people wonder, why did Luke end it so abruptly? And one of the theories that holds a lot of water, though we can't surely know for certain, is that Luke caught up to where Paul was. He was writing this account as it's taking place, and he was not sure what the future held. But the interesting thing is that even though the man of God is locked up, the gospel is still going forward. Because look what happens in verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the two ways that it's described. With all boldness and without hindrance. And therein lies the truth that needs to be unpacked. Notice that there's a relationship between the sovereignty of God and the suffering of his servants with the gospel going forward. In, in other words, there is this misconception that if I'm in the will of God, witnessing is going to come easy. And that if I'm following the Lord, everything I touch is going to grow and every idea I have is going to be turned into gold. This is train wrecking many people's gospel ministry because we've come up against things that are out of our control. You and I have lived during the pandemic of our lifetime. We have watched the political upheaval of our country. Our summer was filled with the discussion of racial tension and racial reconciliation. And one right after another, these incredible movements that are extraordinarily serious and we should not remain ignorant about and we must be sensitive to rattle our cages and pop the bubble of the false sense of insulation that we're so often accustomed to living in. And yet here's Paul, and all he wanted to do after he got saved was to witness. In my mind and in the economy of my wisdom, I'm like, set him free and let him go. Yet God, in his sovereignty, never wastes suffering. In fact, this is not just true for Paul. The first time persecution happens in the book of Acts, we see an amazing response from the church. Look what happens in Acts chapter 4. And now they're praying, Lord, look upon their threats and deliver us from evil. Nope. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and protect our church and our comfortable way of living and the lifestyle with which we're used to and our inalienable rights. Nope. And now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The first generation of Christians didn't have near what we have. But they never saw it as a contradiction for the Savior of the world to call them to suffer. In fact, isn't that what we miss? We often say, Lord, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. We forget the next phrase in that powerful verse says, and the fellowship of your suffering. Th this continues all throughout Scripture. In fact, when Stephen is stoned to death in the book of Acts, the first martyr of Christianity, Saul, who was Paul before Paul got saved, 
Watch what happened. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and except the apostles. So other than the apostles, the followers of Jesus lost their rights, they lost their homes, they lost their opportunities. Watch what people are spending the most time and energy talking about protecting, and God allowed the first generation of Christians to lose that. But I'll tell you what they didn't lose. They didn't lose their sight of being sent because three verses later in chapter 8, verse 4, look what the Scripture says. Now those who were scattered, this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. How did God spread the gospel in the first century? Not through success or prosperity, but through suffering and persecution. Now how does this work? Is God wicked? Would he desire to just cause us suffering and pain? Let me ask you a question. If you go into a cynical world, who do you think the world is more likely to believe? Someone who is convinced of something so much that they will affirm it and believe it as long as it benefits them? Or someone who is convinced of a Savior so deeply they're willing to lose everything to follow him? This is the clarity of a church that recognizes when Jesus saved you, he sent you, and there are zero excuses. When Paul, just before his imprisonment, is talking to Herod the Great's grandson, King Agrippa, he's talking about the gospel. <laughs> King Agrippa realizes in the trial he's being witnessed to. <laughs> he says to Paul, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In other words, Paul, hold on a second. Are, 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 is this what, are you trying to witness to me? In a short time, are you trying to get me to follow your Jesus? I love Paul's answer, chapter 26, verse 29. Whether short or long, in other words, it don't, take, it don't bother me if it takes a long time or a short time. Whether short or long, I would to God that only, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Translation, yes, King Agrippa, I want you to know Christ. I want everybody in the room to know Christ. I want you to have him the way I have him. I want you to know his love and his peace and his grace and his forgiveness. And I don't wish my chains on you because I would love you in Christ. So, yes. My situation is never an excuse not to share. Now drop that in the excuse soup we often mix up and pour over our lives to make us go quiet. I don't know a lot. I'm nervous. I don't want to lose my job. What if it gets awkward? I like this one. They know what I used to be like. I used to party with them. They're going to think I'm a Bible thumper. What if we open up and I share with them and things get weird and they push away from me? I, I like this one. Well, you know, I haven't really said anything about their being lost and needing to be saved, but I did take their kids to trunk or treat for them. And we pile all this list up. And yet I find Paul here in prison still sharing his faith over and over again. And by the way, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, 
Do you know what God says in his word? In the third verse of Acts chapter 1, he talks about the kingdom of God. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, how was the kingdom of God supposed to be spread? Well, who was with Paul every day? His visitors and the Romans. Do you know what Paul did while he was in prison? The first time he wrote books like Philippians, Ephesians, and Colossians. Now, check this out. Did you know what he said to the Philippian believers? In Philippians chapter 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what had happened, by the way, this wasn't a good thing. This was, I've been imprisoned in Rome. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Proof text. God advances the gospel through suffering far more than he ever chooses to use human success. Proof theology, here's why. In the human heart, whenever we experience success, we begin to thirst for independence. I made it. I've done it. I'm free. But when we experience suffering, we are reminded of how fragile and needy we are. Now, some people think that this part of Christianity actually does people a disservice. It doesn't when you recognize the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is not that God would create dependent, depressed people who mope around depending on God to do everything in their life and they're incapable of doing anything for his glory. No, no, no. The full picture of the gospel is a full and total restoration separate from the bondage of sin. But in order to get to that full and total restoration, you have to come to the end of yourself. And often the way God chooses to end self is through the clarity of suffering. Things got clear this year. I don't know that I would have said this. No, no, that's not true. I would not have said this in April, May, June, July, but I will stand before you today and tell you as a pastor, I'm grateful for COVID-19. I'm grateful for what it's taught us. Of course, I'm not grateful in a morbid way that people are sick and that some have lost their life prematurely. Of course, I'm not. But I believe that God has used it to purge us and ask us to ask the hard questions of what really matters. Some of you long to be with us in person and you're watching online and you know that we're counting down the days that you can rejoin us. Others of you would have never found us were it not for COVID-19. But more importantly than your relationship with a particular church, I hope you have one, is your relationship with the Lord. And one of the great answers to a hurting world struggling because our bubble has been popped and all of a sudden people have been re-reminded of how fragile they are is to look and see what a good God does with the chaos of a rebellious creation. What does he do? Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. You know those soldiers that had to watch Paul? Well, guess what he talked to them about every day? Jesus. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And what does it do when someone chooses to blow through all the excuses we stack up for not sharing our faith and we share our faith? It doesn't make other Christians feel guilty. It encourages them. Look at the next verse in the Philippian letter. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Hold up now. Wait a minute. Watch how God flipped it upside down. 
If I'm in a movement and our best leader is in prison, that usually creates a lack of confidence, not confidence. What happened to the disciples when Jesus was arrested? Did they act confident? No, they ran for their lives. They scurried, they spread out. The only people left at the cross was Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and the women who were so close to Jesus. In fact, it was the women that discovered the empty tomb because the disciples were still distraught and in fear. And later that evening, people like Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I touch his side and I see his hands. And so we recognize when the leader goes down, the troops spread. But Paul had seen the full picture, and now he recognizes what God is doing. God is using his life and his suffering to make more of Christ and less of him, which is why he says they've been encouraged and to become confident in my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let me tell you why you have to blow through your excuses of why you're not sharing your faith, because I need you to. Because when you share your faith, it gives me boldness to share my faith. And when we stand together and share our faith and talk with people about the gospel, we encourage one another to continue to do that. And there's one last thing, and this becomes very personal. Do you know who's most grateful when you choose not to make excuses? When you choose to follow Paul's example? For two years in prison, he just kept making the gospel go forward. Theologians love this. The book of Acts shows the triumphant forward march of the gospel and the terrible persecution of people running hand in hand. Do, do you know who's most grateful for that? You may say, well, that's easy. You are, Pastor. You'd be happy if we shared our faith more. I would be. I love you so much. You mean so much to me. I pray for you every day. But I wouldn't be the most grateful person. Oh, well, well, my small group leader, they would be grateful. My e-group leader, they would be grateful if I came and said, hey, I shared my faith this week at work with the lady I work with, the man I work with. I shared my faith with the guy I'm on a ball team with. I, I shared my faith with a coworker out on a job site. Yes, they would be real excited, but they wouldn't be the most grateful. You know who the most grateful person is when we blow through all the excuses and share our faith? You probably already guessed it. The person who gets saved. I love it when our little ones come to faith in Christ. We rejoice in that. Every parent in the room wants that. But I'm going to tell you some of the most powerful testimonies in this church are adults who say, Pastor, I was a hard nut to crack. I was cynical, jaded. I was not fun to be around. I kept people at an arm's length. But somebody never gave up on me. Somebody kept sharing somebody shared and finally God opened my spiritual eyes and I'm so grateful that person swallowed that lump in their throat ignored their sweaty palms and said man I, I just want you to have a relationship with Christ but you must repent of your sin and you must trust I don't want to be morbid I don't think we should be uh, overly distracted or fascinated with our death but I often think of it this way Something happens to me today. I'm going to make it home. I have children, three of which are born again. They're saved. Three of them have not yet made a profession of faith. What if I'm gone and one of my little ones grows up? Laura would marry again. She went for looks the first time. She'd go for money the second time, but... 
she would marry again, I'm sure. I hope she would. But what if they grow up? What if for whatever reason it just never clicks with them? They would be around it. You would love on them. You would encourage them. And I'm speaking of my children, but the same could be true of your children. But they grow up and they make 18, 20, 25, and they move away. I'm in heaven. Laurel's living her life here. They're in another city and they're unsaved. What do you think my desire would be in heaven? I don't know whether or not I have knowledge of it. I am very fearful of people who create theology that's not in the scripture. I think those who've gone before us are so consumed with the glory of Christ that I'm not saying God can't reveal to them what's happening here, but we do not die and turn into guardian angels. We don't float around here. We're not living in cemeteries. We're with the Lord. But I'll tell you what I know I would want as a father. If for whatever reason I have an adult child one day who doesn't know Christ, I'd want their co-worker who knows Jesus to stop making excuses and tell them about the Lord. I could know people in this church who say, Lord, would you please send someone into my daughter's life today? who would show her what it means to follow Jesus. Would you please send someone on my son's job site today who would be willing to live differently and speak differently and exhibit Christ? I've done all I know to do, Lord, and I'll share tomorrow if I'm given the opportunity, but Lord, would you send someone? There are people in my family that do not know Christ and they're on my prayer list. And one of the prayers I pray when I pray over their name is I pray for people to come into their presence who won't make excuses and just share now watch this what if you're the person somebody else is praying for what if you're supposed to be the person that somebody else in some other city is praying hard would speak to their baby and their baby is your co-worker your neighbor the guy that coaches your kid your classmate you don't know what another child of God is doing and praying over their life. But if you and I stack up excuses as to why we won't share, we fly in the face of a God that put his greatest warrior in the first century in prison, and he just kept on sharing. He just kept on sharing. He just kept on speaking to people about the gospel. It was the rhythm of his life. It did not happen every once in a while in a moment of conviction. It was a consistent part of his heartbeat. He stood up every morning and said, Lord Jesus, I report for duty. How can I share with someone today? What can I say to my waitress? What can I do to my coworker? What is it that I can do to share with that friend who seems so cynical or bitter? How can I talk with someone who's struggling or hurt? They're unchurched, dechurched, or overchurched. What can I do? And as long as my heart is beating, I want to be a person who has that sense of urgency that I see people and I make zero excuses. And then when I recognize that, I recognize we've been sent secondly to all people. Look at the verse, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. We've been thinking about groups all year. Over the last year, we've thought about groups along racial lines. As a country, we've talked about groups along political lines. 
And the church has been wrestling with its own identity and its own struggles in the past and in the present with racism, with ageism, with sexism. We recognize that churches have lost their way because they've gotten too infatuated. I see churches that lean left theologically become so consumed with social justice they forget to tell people to get saved or you're going to go to hell. And then there are churches that hold the flag of being right and conservative that become so concerned with political victories they forget that Jesus died for Democrats and Republicans and everybody. And yet the church of Christ is led by people like Paul who says, whoever you'll send me, Lord, I don't care who they are, I don't care if they're paid to be here today to guard me or they're a visitor who wants to ask questions. Anybody in my presence is a potential person I can tell about the grace of Jesus. You know, we're not the first generation of Christians to be mocked about the inactivity of our God in relationship to the second coming. I don't know about you, but I've had this emotion this year. Lord, just come on back. I mean, can we end? This is crazy. I'm ready to go home. And many believers in many generations have struggled with this, and some have endured the criticism where people have said, oh, you Christians talk about Jesus coming back. He hadn't come back. Where is your God? And some of the first believers were struggling with this. You know what Peter says to them about this? Peter says in the book of 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. Now watch this word. Here it comes. Patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The blood of Christ is sufficient to save anyone who would believe. I am totally dependent on the work of God to save people. I believe in his sovereign predestination, foreknowledge, and election. But no teaching in Scripture ever teaches me that I am anywhere close to the person who determines whom God has died for because he died that all might have eternal life. In fact, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him. Now, what does this do? It just creates a target-rich environment. Everybody I come in contact with ultimately falls into one category or another, and some may say, that's antiquated, that's archaic thinking, that's politically incorrect. In the heaven perspective, there is a Lamb's book of life. Your name's either in it or it is not. There is no in-between. And though I don't understand nor have access to what God is doing in people's hearts, we should share with all people the message of Christ. So don't wave your political flag don't wave your racial reconciliation flag don't wave your flag to protect the wealthy or provide for the poor don't wave any flag the world is waving so high that you lose sight of this you live your life with such kindness and conviction that no matter whom is in your path no matter what their political views may be no matter their background, their opinions, or their perception, you live in such a way that you're given the opportunity to share with them about something bigger than their current cause, something that answers racial reconciliation in a way far deeper than any program, something that brings forth equity and justice that is eternal, something that cares for the downtrodden and the poor and the needy, something that humbles the rich and tells them to be generous. And that something 
is the final value. We are given zero excuses. We are given and sent to all people. And finally, we're sent with one message. Three values, zero, all, and one. And what is the message? Well, I'll close with what Paul said the message was. Look what the Bible says. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came. Look at verse 31. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't hear a lot about the kingdom, especially among evangelicals. In fact, many people believe this is the problem with our presentation of the gospel. It's very personal. You've heard pastors say, you've heard me say, hey, look, no one can stand before the Lord but you. You have to decide. You have to choose. I want you to receive Christ. That's biblical. That's fair. I can show you scripture that would affirm that. But so often it is the watered-down version of the gospel that comes next. If you just give your life to Jesus, then everything in your life's going to work out. Man, I'm going to tell you, no matter what you're facing, just grab Philippians 4.13, rip it out of context. You can do all things through Christ Jesus. I even read one false teacher who literally wrote in a book, he literally wrote in a book, that God is so much for you and he wants you to have your best life now that when you pull into a shopping mall, if you pray and ask Jesus, he'll give you the closest parking spot. Does he not love the little old lady that got there three minutes after you did? It's like two ball teams in a locker room both praying for God to give them the victory. God doesn't really care what the score is. He might care how you play. That's not what he cares about. You see, the gospel is not just a person. It's a place. When Jesus first came onto the scene, what did he preach? He preached the kingdom of God. The America, as we know it, is changing, and so people have become infatuated with it. Many people are arguing we're losing the nation's identity. I hear this quote a lot. This is for the soul of America. Other people have a view that our country is headed now in the right direction. The reality is countries rise and countries fall, but Jesus preached not about a country. He preached a kingdom. In fact, when he first showed up on the scene, what does Jesus say? Jesus says in the book of Matthew, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when he talked about salvation, he said, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's your birth through your mother, that is the water, not baptism water, he's talking about the birth related to water, born of water, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So entering the kingdom is a, a big deal. It's a big deal to be a part of the kingdom. You know, the kingdom is a literal place. It's a real place. In fact, God is building his kingdom in two ways. We know that he's going to one day build a literal kingdom. And when he builds a literal kingdom, he's going to destroy the earth, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Let me tell you how good it's going to be. They'll use gold for asphalt. That's how good. And, and, and in that place, everyone who knows Christ will be with him forever, and there'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more shame. Until he comes and builds that new kingdom after a thousand-year reign here on earth called the millennial reign, which will happen right after his coming, until those things take place, he's building his kingdom spiritually. He's not building his kingdom with brick and mortar. He's building his kingdom with the souls of men and women. And this kingdom is only experienced through Christ. This is why he said the kingdom of God is at hand, and he was referring to himself. When we think about this, we think of what else he taught about the kingdom. The next cross-reference will be an example of this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God 
And then when we seek first the kingdom of God, we recognize it comes with power. In, in other words, God, God is saying, whatever you bind on earth, I'll bind in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, I'll loose in heaven. And that is contingent on me, Jesus, giving you, the church, the keys to the kingdom. Even when the disciples said, Jesus, tell us how to pray. What did Jesus say? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Everybody's infatuated by this place. And believers have a ticket to a new place. And so often what happens is the presentation of the gospel when we witness is so personalized to your fears and your goals and your dreams and your ambitions, we forget to tell people they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Why is that important? It's hugely important when their dreams don't work out, when death comes prematurely, when opportunities don't open, when God, watch this, asks you to do what he's always asked believers to do. Be willing to suffer for his kingdom. If you don't understand the kingdom, when the suffering comes, all you have to lean on is the personal promises of a here and now gospel. The greatest thing the gospel delivers you from is the curse of your sin eternally, not a bad week. And when you have the deliverance from the curse of your sin, you then feel like I'm a part of something bigger than me. So God, if you prosper me temporarily here on earth, I'll give you the glory. But if you allow me to be persecuted and you cause my life to endure suffering that I may make much of you, I'll give you the glory anyway because I already got the keys to the kingdom. And when we tell people a gospel like that, all of a sudden it changes into something that either they reject or they leverage their whole life for. The one message is a place and a person. The person, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the two verbs. It says he proclaimed and he taught. Remember the Great Commission? You've heard it before many times here. Those of you watching online, you, you probably can see it as well. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Watch this. Go therefore and make disciples. You guys hear that? We want to be a disciple-making church. Baptizing. Remember, I always tell you, we can't save people. We can just help them outwardly confess their salvation through baptism. Them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God, reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's called the Trinity. That's a post-biblical word that the church fathers coined to describe the person of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Teaching. This is so often missing. We work so hard to get to the decision, we forget that the decision is only a part of the mission. Teaching them. I love this because it's an appeal to your will or your mind. I think preaching ought to move you. I'm so glad that I don't stand up here and go through outlines with you like this. If I were you, I would find another church. If I stood here and said, and this is the year Paul was born, and this is the year Paul died, and here are three principles and four things that you can. I, I think preaching ought to move people. You ought to appeal to their will. But if you just appeal to their will and not inform their mind, the world will wreck them. If you just appeal to their mind and not their will, they may be smart, but they won't be passionately obedient. Paul says he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught them about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have to do. 
Not what I have to do. What we have to do. Now, I know the temptation of a message like this is for you to say, well, pastor wants me to reflect on how I should be a more intentional witness of my faith. That's true, but that would fall short. I actually want you to reflect on somebody else. Who has God placed in your life? That nephew that's wondering, that co-worker, that terrible language, that sister who's been through a nasty divorce and now she's living with another man, that grown son who checked the card and prayed the prayer and they seem to be more consumed with how quickly they can get to the weekend so they can party rather than making decisions that honor the Lord. That neighbor who's really, really sweet, but COVID has scared them to death and they've turned into a hermit because they are genuinely afraid to die. You've seen that their fear is unhealthy and you're burdened for where their soul is. That's what today's sermon's about. It's about real life people who need someone to make zero excuses. Be willing to share with all people one message. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, all week there was a heaviness in my preparation. This is not a light-hearted subject. Very often, someone will come out who has expressed faith and say, it's ludicrous for Christians to believe that Jesus is the only way. Or it's so antiquated to try to convert people. We live in a day and age where it's just easy to be quiet, to not say anything, to make excuses, to, to believe that somehow just living a moral life is enough. And yet we just don't find that in Scripture. You had not been out of the grave 24 hours and you said, I'm sending you. Just a few weeks later, you, you said, you will be my witnesses. The early church knew nothing of mega worship centers or missions organizations or theological seminaries rank and file clerical organization church knew nothing of those things there was no stained glass windows or pipe organs or incredible graphics or digital sound systems All they knew was that 
you said you were the Son of God and you died and you rose again and you gave forgiveness of sin and life and love and hope and when you breathed your spirit upon your church you made dead men live. That's exactly what our co-workers, our teammates, our friends, people groups we've never even engaged need. We cannot let a lost world determine our talking points, Lord. It has not changed. We love you, we want to follow you, and we need to make you known. It's that simple. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, lovingly and, and, and certainly with a, with a measure of sensitivity, I, I don't want you to think about yourself. I'm not interested in you beating yourself up of every time you've fallen short. I could care less if you feel as though in the past you haven't quite been as bold as you need to be. I'm not interested in miring you in guilt. I don't want to manipulate you. In fact, I know any of those things can create temporary change, but they will not change the rhythm of your life nor the heartbeat of your commitment to the gospel, but this will. I want you to think of two people. Two people. One, I want you to think about your Savior and what He's done for you or what He wants to do for you. I want you to think about His preeminence and His glory the depth, the height of his love, the power of his cross, the effectiveness of his blood, the completeness of his forgiveness, the assurance of his kingdom, the courage and strength of his rule, the certainty of his return. He is kind and good, royal and humble. He is a lamb and a lion. He is greatly and mighty to be praised. I want you to have a big, grand view of the greatness of the glory of God. I want it to spill out of your mind and your heart just as the train of his robe filled the throne room in Isaiah 6. You cannot get away from him. You won't get out from under him. You can't get him off of you. You don't know where he ends nor he begins there's never a time when he has not been. There'll never be a time when he is not. And there'll never be a time where he will not be. He has never had to worry about an election or a vote count. And the enemy cannot impeach him. I want you to think about the greatness of a good God who loves all people. And then with that big, magnificent view of the glorious, resurrected Christ, I want you to think about that person that you know that needs him. So two names should be in your mind right now. One is the magnificent Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star, the lion and the tribe of Judah, the descendant of the root of Jesse, the new Adam, the new David, the full Moses, the perfect Joseph. And then the other name, and it's just going to be an ordinary name, it might be John or Mark or 
Alex, Mary, Stephanie, Jennifer, Jose, Andre, Jeff. I don't know what their name is, but you know who they are. And can you imagine that that great and glorious God died for them? You have no power over their heart. You cannot create sensitivity in their spirit. You cannot save them. And only the sovereignty of God knows their future. And he has given you no excuse not to share. His blood is sufficient for anyone who would turn in faith. And there is only one message they must hear. Now go get it. Go put those two names together. Father, even as we stand and worship, may we worship your glory, but may our mind practice some divine duplicity. May we focus on you as our God and that person that you've brought to our mind that needs you. And may we be reminded as we walk out these doors, there are zero excuses. Your blood is sufficient for all. And there is one message, and that is the value of being sent. You move now as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.